Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. In no way, shape, or form will Norfolk Southern get off the hook for the mess that they created. EPA takes control of toxic Ohio train derailment disaster three weeks later. Right-wing media tries to weaponize Ohio disaster into culture war fodder. Plus, surprise, the oil and gas industry has failed to cut climate warming methane emissions as promised. All of those broken promises and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Trump, who is running in next year's presidential election, met with community members and local officials to get an update on cleanup efforts on the ground. As part of his visit, he also donated more than a dozen pallets of water and cleaning supplies. (laughs) Oh boy, a dozen. This is your... Green News Report. We're bringing thousands of bottles of water, Trump water, actually, most of it. Uh, some of it we had to go to a much lesser quality water. Okay, Desi Doyen, CNN is reporting that in the Ohio train derailment disaster, Norfolk Southern, the train company is paying 6.5 million dollars to help affected residents meanwhile they note the rail company paid its shareholders 7.5 billion what no trump water as well to go with it (laughs) apparently not The Biden Environmental Protection Agency asserted its legal authority this week to take control of the cleanup of the toxic chemical train derailment disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. Finally! Three weeks after the incident, the EPA announced sweeping enforcement actions against railroad company Norfolk Southern and compelled the company to pay the entire cleanup bill. Good. At a press conference, EPA Administrator Michael Regan said he knows the EPA cannot undo the nightmare visited on residents, but reassured the community that it won't be left to handle the aftermath alone after the news cameras leave. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community and impacted Beaver County residents. We're not going to leave this community to manage this aftermath alone. Well, one might wonder what has taken them so long to get there. On the other hand, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine doesn't seem to have wanted the federal government there at all. Pennsylvania's attorney general has opened a criminal investigation into the company's actions. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg also announced a package of reforms and asked Congress to untie the department's hands on enforcement, like increasing maximum fines for rail safety violations that are currently capped at just over 200 Why is it the Pennsylvania Attorney General who's taking action here, not Ohio's Attorney General? That's an excellent question. Thank you. Disgraced former President Donald Trump staged a visit to East Palestine, unintentionally highlighting his own record of slashing regulations on both rail safety and hazardous chemicals. The Trump administration repealed several rules on the grounds that the cost to industry outweighed any potential benefits, but an AP analysis found the Trump administration administration underestimated the costs of future derailments by more than $100 million. Republicans and right-wing media are trying to weaponize the derailment by attacking the federal response, but omitting, as noted, that Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine still has yet to formally request a federal disaster declaration. By the way, I hope someone has checked that Trump water 
for hazardous chemicals. Just saying. The Biden White House countered that congressional Republicans and Trump officials, quote, owe East Palestine an apology for selling them out to rail industry lobbyists when they dismantled Obama-era safety rules. It is darling that suddenly Republicans have decided to become so disturbed about all of this. Uh, Where were those same Republicans when... Uh, People couldn't return to their homes because of the toxic air in Porter Ranch out here in California, thanks to the natural gas industry. Where were those Republicans when toxic lead-poisoned water was being fed to the town of Flint, Michigan? All of a sudden, when it's a bunch of Republicans who are affected by all of this with a Democrat in the White House, suddenly they decide to give a damn. Go figure. In other news, a new report by the International Energy Agency finds that, surprise, the fossil fuel industry is failing to repair its methane leaks despite the industry's pledges to do so. The IEA says the oil and gas industry can cheaply reduce methane emissions by 75 percent using existing technologies, and it said halting non-emergency flaring and venting of gas into the atmosphere, quote, is the most single impactful measure countries can take. Methane matters because it is a more potent climate-warming gas than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. I'm sure Fox News and all the Republicans are furious about all of that methane poisoning people around the country, right? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It's all been a pack of lies. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. No, religion isn't dead. It's just taking new forms. Millennials haven't lost faith. They might not call it God, as I do. They might call it love. They might call it community. They might just call it a higher spirit. We live in an age of yes and, seemingly endless opportunities for connecting along intersecting identities and priorities, giving greater voice to what we have in common and learning deeply from our differences. As we turn the calendar page to March, celebrated as Women's History Month, I'm excited to have Reverend Jennifer Bailey, founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network, with us. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating, impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. The Reverend Jennifer Bailey is an ordained minister, 
public theologian and national leader in the multi-faith movement for justice. She is the founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network, a womanist-led organization equipping community leaders, faith leaders, and activists with resources for connection, spiritual sustainability, and accompaniment. Reverend Jen is also co-founder of The People's Supper. Reverend Jen, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Paul, it's so good to be with you. I miss you. It's been a while since we've been together. I feel exactly the same way. So let's get into it. What is really your focus right now? You have a young one. You have a a whole world that involves young people, but then you also have the broader world of your ministry and your commitments. Like you woke up today and you had to deal with a young one, but then also you're going to have to deal with the state of our nation. And I'm just wondering, like, what is sustaining you on this day? Mm, Thank you so much for that question. I would say toddler giggles. So I am the mother of a two-year-old son, Max, who is just the light of my life and the bane of my existence and all of the things. I love that it's both those together. I relate. I've described parenting as just a joyful pain in the butt. And I feel like it is... um, he has become over the last two years, my greatest teacher. And I'll share with you because it's in past the first trimester, we're expecting a second. So I will be a mama times two um, this July. And so I'm just really excited as we're expanding our family. And, you know, I mentioned Max and um, the baby that is coming in part because what really has been driving me over the last two years is asking the question of the world that my children are inheriting. Um, I'm 35 years old and a millennial, which is not quite as young as it used to be. (laughs) Um, And one of the key questions I think that has been at the core of my inquiry, both in my vocational life and my spiritual life has been this question of what it means for us to pass on legacy what do we, what is it that we're inheriting? And then what is it that we want to pass forward? And, you know, I didn't know when I got pregnant the first time around that I would be giving a birth in the middle of a global pandemic that um, the summer before Max was born and September of 2020, we would be in the midst of a moment of racial justice uprisings following the murder of George Floyd. I didn't know um, as I was preparing to give birth just the the dire state of our climate and Mm. as Mm. it is you know 70 something degrees in february in nashville tennessee right now right right um and it feels very precarious um at the same time i am a christian in the black church tradition and i believe in hope and not like a, a a loose hope that is based on sort of a a a frivolity of aspiration, but a hope that is deeply rooted in recognizing the legacy that I, as a Black woman, carry forth in my DNA from strong women who um, survived against all odds and laid the foundation for me to be here. So isn't that, I mean, it reminds me of your book, you know, I just want to, you know, the, to my beloveds, letters on race, uh, on faith, race, loss, and radical hope. I mean, t- tell us a little bit about that. Like, uh, 
to my beloveds. For I mean, every word there is so rich with meaning. And you know, when you're talking about you know who who came before you, who who your you your what you have inherited, and then also what you view as your legacy. You know, it is it's this stream, this mighty river. Uh, and so, tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah. Wow. That book was a long time coming, as my publisher would tell you. <laughs> um, and I kind of reached the point where, like, I was, I think I was, like, six months pregnant. And I was like, either this is going to get written or it's not. <laughs> um, mm. And and I think one of the things that really drove my my inquiry in that book was this question about how how we sit with the the reality and the heaviness of loss. Um, mm. I lost my mother in 2016, have lost some dear friends, including one of my best friends from high school who passed away about three weeks after Max was born. Mm. Um, and so, so much of my young adulthood was characterized by loss. And so I found myself in the midst of this global pandemic where we were suffering um, losses that seemed just too great to fully perceive asking my, myself what have i learned along the way that might be useful to other folks and what is the sort of dialogue um that i want to have both with the past and with the future with the senior saints and the playground prophets with the folks that i think um are going to help us path chart a new way a new path forward and so the book is is a series of letters that I write to people, both um, that I know and folks that I imagine to be part of my beloved community mm. um, around yeah. some of those those topics. Um, so those letters touch on everything from from the loss of my mother to uh, a letter that I wrote to Max when he was still in my womb about sort of my hopes for him as you know a child who is both black and Jewish and was emerging and is emerging at a time of, you know, very palatable anti-black racism, but also rising anti-Semitism in the world. Oh, and what does that mean for him and his, the shaping of his identity as a young, as a young person and as a, as a child. It's also, you know, I touch on my own mental health struggles and um, suicidal ideation as a young person and, two friends and in, in the text that I lost to suicide in my early 20s. And so, you know, I think um, it is easy sometimes for people of faith and those of us who have been called into formalized ministry to sort of um, <laughs> to shy away from the hard stuff because we are expected to perform a role in public. And so part of the invitation of the the book is to step in. I think that's why I wrote it in the way that I did. And I signed the letters um, with different forms of my identity, right? Mm. Um, as, as a, you know, as a daughter, as a, as somebody's mama, as an auntie in training, I write a letter to Gen, Gen Zers in the book, right? Uh -huh. um, and so it was also in part an exploration of my own growing sense of identity at a time where I think in my early thirties, I had felt pretty stifled and limited by sort of the, the public performance of preacher <laughs> and uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, pastoral leader and had lost a sense of who I was outside of that, which I think is often true for folks who serve in, in roles that are publicly facing. 
Yeah, I think I, I think often you you find preachers facing that at at sixty and seventy with a little bit more regret, uh, and you're offering people the opportunity to really have that part of what it means to be a minister: the vulnerability, the recognition of struggle. Um, that book is "To My Beloveds: Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope." It's really that is so inspiring. We need to take a quick break, but we're just getting started with Reverend Jen Bailey of Faith Matters Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. So you decided to torture me with Hannity and Cruz in addition to Tucker just well, because? Because the U.S. The invasion has begun, and the Fox has gone all in on this invasion. Right. Spoken to the American people about it, but it could be an unidentified flying object, maybe an extraterrestrial. That's that's NORAD. You never know, Senator. Well, you know, uh, we, we've got aliens crossing our southern border. Maybe they're crossing our northern border in the skies, too. Il- you know, apparently, illegal immigrant, illegal alien is no longer correct, <laughs> but yes, I understand your point. <laughs> <laughs> I slept during the box music. <laughs> oh, uh, Hannity also had Marjorie Taylor Greene on to complain that not enough money went toward rail safety in the bill that she voted against entirely. Correct. So, did he bring that up at all? That that might be hypocritical in some way? That it was uh, infrastructure week every week under Trump, but none ever actually ever got done. And when it did get done, she voted against the whole thing, which included rail safety. She can take that line down yeah. to the corner market because this fight yeah. and dime ain't buying it anymore. Yeah, and buying her in line today. Where's that from, people? Get to work. If you send us shut the up mountain one more time, we, know we, will, we will snap. We, <laughs> you guys don't understand we, we how on the edge. Now. Oh, we try to ignore, but we are actively yeah. violent towards you yeah. now. If yeah. you send us yeah. the Grace and Frankie. Show. I found out where it's from. It's from Grace and Frankie. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to get on our nerves, this is how you do it. Yeah. Yep. Go. Don't do All it. Right, if, if you're on our Twitter, There's I'm going to mute or block you. We apologize. There's a lot of horrors up in this house this morning. A lot of bastard people. We apologize. We're in a mood. We don't know. We've had to talk about Donald Trump for too many years. Yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene reacted to last week's hazardous train uh, derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, which released toxic chemicals, chemicals such as vinyl chloride into the air. Residents reported seeing uh, dead wildlife. Suddenly, they're concerned about wildlife, like, I guess, on the right. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. My guest is Reverend Jen Bailey, author of the book, To My Beloveds, Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope. One thing that you're involved with, with which I think is just really important at this time, is a kind of a collective weave, and it's something that that is dedicated to the cultivation of trust. And I feel like that is something that we're impoverished. Mm. We're trust impoverished. I feel like almost every interaction on the street, in any situation, like the question of trust, even if it's not acknowledged, it's there. Tell me a little bit about Weave and what that's all about. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be a part of what I think is a growing ecosystem of work that is dedicated to doing 
deep um, bridge building work, work that is intended to see um, not through or beyond our differences, but attempt to reach out to make meaning and understanding of our differences, especially globally, but especially in the U.S. context where difference has been viewed um, as a detriment to our democracy sometimes, <laughs> rather than mm. an asset, right, like as a source of conflict. And so one of the things that I think is so beautiful about Weave in particular is that in the context of this larger project of bridge building that's afoot in the country, Weave has really turned its attention to this question of trust, as you were mentioning. Um, and we know that social trust has been declining over the last 50 years in the United States at the same time that loneliness has been rising. I, I think the statistic is something like 54% of Americans say they no longer have someone in their life who knows them well, and 39% say they're no longer close to anyone. What's so interesting, if you look at some of the loneliness demographics, is that I think there might be um, an assumption that that sits largely with elders. But what we see is that it's not just older generations, but it's younger generations as well that are reporting um, this high degree of loneliness. And it's devastating. And I think for me in particular, as, as a person who grew up um, in a spiritual community and context that was deeply intergenerational, that was deeply family oriented, where I knew that um, I not only had my parents to take care of me, but a, a network of adults who who saw me and loved me, right? To think that those spaces are becoming less and less common are, is, mm. is devastating as we are living less and less in intergenerational community and more and more in these sort of isolated silos. So one of the beautiful things about Weave, um, which is a project of the Aspen Institute, is that Weave is a collective and community of folks who are building trust from the ground up. Um, they aren't necessarily looking for common ground, but are looking to work to remember our common humanity and to see the worth in everyone. Um, you know, we all know weavers in our own communities, whether it's the abuela who sits on the block, who has like an eye on everybody's kids, right? Or, you know, teachers who see an issue in their community and just you know, see that kids are hungry and do food drives, right? right. Those folks right. who are naturally inclined towards this notion of weaving and building deeper connection. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's been a real gift. Well, and I, I, actually, I, I honestly, and this is like, this is flattery or, or compliment, but I, I view you as that person. I really do. I, you know, so that makes me, it makes total sense that you're a leader in this network. And um, I do feel like in the wider world in which I sit, um, Reverend Jen Bailey has a particular like place in bringing people together, finding ways to work together. So it's just a, it's such an identity for you in a very positive way and not in, again, the fluffy way, but in the serious way. And one of the things that I, I personally struggle here, you know, I, I see the ways certain people are treated and I, and I feel threatened by certain rhetoric that I hear, you know, for my own family and for, you know, and pe for people I love. And so it is hard for me to kind of blend this idea of like, how do I find trust with someone else, even as I feel very threatened and recognize the potential harm that can happen to me. And so how do we, how do we blend that? How do we blend like social, social justice, the work towards, um, ensuring that our communities are are safe and respected with the idea of understanding the humanity of, of all sides. 
Yeah, you know, I think this is a a key question. And part of that inquiry begins with it, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I've, I think it is John Powell who talks a lot about the length of bridges that we're willing to bridge, right? Mm. Sometimes it's easier um, to cross a short bridge than a long bridge. And I would also say that as we think about this work of, of bridge building or weaving, whatever metaphor you might use for this metaphor of trust building and relationality, you know, there are situations where for some of us, depending on how we are embodied in our identities and our commitments, that it may not be safe for us to do bridging work in a particular mm. moment. But there are opportunities and moments where we might feel called to because of our own sense of community and who that community is. And so this is where I, I think I feel a lot of gratitude in my tradition for this notion of discernment, <laughs> right? Mm. Like, really being able to sit and wade in the question of how am I called to weave or bridge in this season? With whom am I called to, to do it? Where am I bridging to? Or where? what is the goal of the weaving that I'm up mm -hmm. to? Mm -hmm. um, and what are we, what are we bridging over, right? Like what are some right. of the, the histories and realities and truths that need to be spoken in order for us to authentically come to the table to have conversations? And in some cases, right, that work is just about doing the work together, right? Yeah. If you were living in a community, thinking about the crisis in East Palestine, Ohio, right, where you're living in the midst of an environmental justice crisis after a train has dumped toxic chemicals all over your community into your watershed. Everybody has a rallying cry, right? Around the health and well-being of their families and communities that can serve as a space while working towards a common goal to bridge divides as you're working towards that sort of aspiration of more healthy and full lives and justice, yeah. <laughs> right? To not let it be a stumbling block. You know, like not the either or. I mean, you're very much like yes and, and it's not like that. That involves like a complex um, system, and not saying we're we're not going to do we're not going to do bridge building work and ignore the reality of our lives and how we're feeling. We're actually going to bring that into into the conversation, and we're not going to stop trying to build a bridge just because you know we're fearful. But actually, is a way forward. Discernment is a way forward. We need to take another break, but up next, more with Reverend Jen Bailey, co-founder of The People's Supper. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed today, extended interviews and transcripts, as well as an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar, this time on Code Whack. What's the potential price tag of not having health insurance in America? How much could you rack up in bills for an ambulance ride and a night of hospitalization if you're not insured? 
To find out, we spoke to Venus Lockett, a Georgia resident who faced tens of thousands of dollars of medical debt after suffering a mini stroke while unemployed in 2016. Welcome to Code Whack, Venus. Well, thank you for having me. Ah, oh, we're so excited to have you. When I first heard about your story from Bernita Haynes from the National Consumer Law Center, I felt so much sympathy for you and everything you went through. And I'm so happy that you agreed to talk to us about your medical debt. And we'll get into that in just a minute, but before we do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you live and what do you do? Sure, so I currently reside in Fairburn, Georgia. And so currently I am employed with the city of Atlanta as the program manager for the Bank On program. We work to bring unbanked and underbanked people into the financial mainstream. That sounds like important work. Absolutely. So Americans are saddled with at least 140 billion in outstanding medical debts, which hits the poor and those living in America's South the hardest. In the spring of 2016, you had a sudden health emergency that put you into significant medical debt. Can you tell us what happened? Sure, so I serve as a state chair for um, the Money Smart Week campaign, which is um, managed by the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, but the Atlanta Fed is our supporting partner in our district. And so every year they host our um, kickoff luncheon. And um, during that kickoff luncheon, um, we usually award scholarships to students, you know, um, uh, based on the winners of the essay contest. So this particular year, I'd been up all night preparing. And when I got to the Fed, first thing I erased my presentation by mistake. Mistake. And then the student forgot his essay to read. And so I was kind of in a tizzy a little bit. And so by the time I got up to the podium to speak, I didn't notice it, but my colleague did that I was kind of slurring my speech and that kind of thing. So she rushed up there and, and took me by the arm and pulled me off. And she must have motioned to my other co-chair to come and take my place. And so when I got out to the atrium, they set me down. She said I was having a stroke. I didn't know that. But I was locked inside of myself. I couldn't even speak. Luckily, the Fed has emergency people on site. And when they came, they took my blood pressure it was up over 200 and I couldn't speak with them. And they took it a couple of times. And so they asked me about going to the hospital and I was like, no, 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 I didn't want to go. But they were like, your blood pressure is really high. You need to go. So that's what started the whole thing. Wow. And why did you say you didn't want to go? So at the time I was unemployed, I was volunteering, but unemployed. And so, you know, all I can think of in my mind is, you know, incurring bills that I might not be able to pay. That was the main thing. And then I also know that ambulance rides are kind of expensive. And so really in my mind, I was like, my friend can take me around to the hospital. <laughs> you know, So I just didn't want to incur those expenses. So what happened? Did your friend end up taking you? No. So I finally agreed because it was so bad to go in the ambulance. And when I got in the ambulance, they hooked me up to all kinds of stuff. And the hospital was just like a few miles away. And then I get to the hospital, to the emergency room, of course, and they, you know, put me in a room and then I ended up staying overnight. They ran all these tests and told me that I had a transient ischemic attack, which is a mini stroke, which is not uncommon in our arena because what we do is a work of heart. And we really, really, you know, are committed to this work and we, it is heartfelt. So it's not uncommon. That's a really interesting point. So then how long did you end up staying in the hospital? I just stayed overnight, believe it or not. <laughs> I think I left the hospital maybe about 12 or 1 that next day. But throughout the night, I was under observation and they ran, you know, all kind of tests on me to figure out what was going on. And then what happens next? 
So I leave and, you know, I'm at home recovering for the weekend and that kind of thing. And so not too long after that, I don't remember how many days or whatever. So I got one bill that was 200 and something dollars, right? And I'm thinking that was it, naive me, because I really don't go to the hospital. But I'll tell you, when that bill came for $26,000 and something, I about like had another uh, mini stroke. I was just outdone at the cost of it, you know? And so it was like, how am I going to pay this? I just started to worry. And then by me being unemployed, I didn't want that to hit my credit report. I tried to call to figure out how I could pay. And I think I must've made the call to the wrong organization or something because they told me there was nothing they could do, not even a payment plan. And that didn't seem right to me. And so shortly after that, I received, you know, more bills, but I just kind of set it aside for the moment while I got my mind wrapped around what just happened. Wow. And didn't they give you a deadline? Like you had to pay it within a certain time frame? Yeah, that deadline, if I'm correct, was almost like three weeks to have that done. And, you know, by being unemployed and that amount of money, I'm like, what in the world? And that's why I got on the phone to call. Thank you, Venus Lockett. Join us next time when we continue our discussion with Venus and hear how she coped with her more than $30,000 of medical debt at a time that she was both uninsured and unemployed. Do you have a personal story you'd like to share about our WAC healthcare system? Contact us through our website at heal-ca.org. Find more Code WAC episodes on progressivevoices.com and on Nurse Talk Media. You can also subscribe to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. I'm with Reverend Jen Bailey, founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network. I want to ask you a little bit about um, about Faith Matters Network, which I have just admired since the moment you created it. It's so interesting. You use the term that may not be familiar to all of our listeners, which is womanist. Can you talk a little bit about what womanist means and what, what what's involved in a womanist, uh, an organization that uh, has womanist ideas at its core? Oh, absolutely. Well, as I think about um, what it means to self-identify as a womanist and womanism, um, for folks who may not be familiar with womanism, womanist theology and ethics really is um, a theoethical praxis. That's a fancy way of saying way of life and being (laughs) that places at the core of its analysis the lived experiences of African-American and Black women. Um, And in particular, thinking about the intersecting ways in which things like race, class, and gender, um, sexual orientation, right, inform how we, um, as Black women, have moved throughout the world and influenced both our view of the divine and of community. And so, so much of our work at Faith Matters Network begins through that lens. I have a, a wonderful mentor um, who Paul knows, Lisa Anderson, who said, says Black women have never had a vision of liberation that has never been inclusive of everyone, right? Because we know that if we, who have been um, cast aside, maligned, and placed to the very edges of society, are working towards a vision of wholeness and community that uplifts us and our people and everyone else 
will be included in that vision as well. And so at Faith Matters Network, um, I'm really privileged um, to work alongside some incredible women. Um, 70% of my staff identifies as women of color. 100% of our senior leadership team is Black women. And that informs our lived experience, informs our practice, but doesn't inform uh it informs the way that we offer radical hospitality to all. So our programs aren't exclusively um, for Black women, although that is the, the positionality out of which we, we operate. Um, and our work is really committed to working alongside and accompanying spiritually grounded leaders on their journey to heal themselves and their communities. And that has manifested over the years and a number of different programs and projects that have at the core of its analysis, really this notion of what it means to, to be in the business of healing, recognizing that the work of healing is not a destination, it is a journey, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about that, that project within ourselves or whether or not we're talking about that project in the context of, of our society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Really grateful for some of, you know, my womanist mentors, people like the Reverend Dr. Emily Towns and Reverend Dr. Stacey Boyd-Thomas, who taught me at Vanderbilt University Divinity School, which I'm a proud alum, but also for some of those unspoken womanists in my life. And by unspoken, I mean like folks in my life who would have never had the terminology to call themselves a womanist, but right. those, those church mothers of my childhood who like right. very much right. embodied sort of the radical hospitality and audacity and boldness and commitment to community that um, really seeded and empowered me as a little black girl growing up in Quincy, Illinois, um, mm. to see myself beyond um, the limitations that others might put on me. That's it's so powerful. And, you know, the I, I was privileged to go to seminary when Dolores Williams was teaching it at Union and, and Lisa Anderson, uh, who is one of my greatest teachers and mentors and friends, uh, was one of my tutors, meaning like she was she was she was the exalted PhD folks and I was the lowly MDiv. But, you know, it really it really enlivened my spirituality to imagine the world and also, you know, find locuses of meaning that were not introduced to me, frankly, in other spaces. And 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 also change my kind of center of gravity a little bit to mm -hmm. look towards other places for for wisdom and also commitment, where my commitments might lie, you know, with my privilege, frankly, as uh, you know, uh cis white male who has a lot of privileges that come with that. And so mm -hmm. um so it's just been, you know, I, I just appreciate you sharing with us what womenist um, uh, means, and you know, especially as we're entering uh, um, Women's History Month, it's just important to recognize that this is a place where people can come together and find meaning, uh, and the incredible strength of Black women in this country. But also, like I want to, I, I, I want to make sure I say it right. Uh, but um, we're not going to step over the 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 bodies in order mm -hmm. to get to our liberation. We're not gonna step over the dead bodies in order to get to our liberation. And and mm -hmm. I think that that is like also like the healing and the the, the kind of process. And so I, I just really appreciate that. Tell me a little bit about, um, about the People's Supper. I know that um, that may not be your day-to-day, -day, 
But that was a really important idea that you did that took a lot of work. (laughs) And, uh, And I'm not sure this... I think it started pretty soon after the election of 2016, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that, uh, the People's Supper. So the People's Supper was a project that got seeded after the 2016 presidential election, although the roots of it actually predated the presidential election results. Um, It's in conversation with two dear colleagues, Emily May and Lennon Flowers, Um, each of whom run their own really beautiful organizations. Emily runs an organization called Right to Be. Lennon um, runs an organization called The Dinner Party. And throughout that election cycle, I think the three of us were just acutely aware and who knew how how, how, uh, (laughs) dramatic we would be of just how toxic the rhetoric in our politics had become and how um, triggering for so many people the election cycle was. And so you know, we thought about doing something together um, in the aftermath of the election to try to give space to hold some of the experiences people were holding. And then, you know, 2016 happens and there's just sort of like this outpouring of, in some cases, elation, right, from certain corners, but in many of our communities, a sense of grief and fear being at the center of many folks' reactions. And so the People's Supper began as a project called 100 Days, 100 Dinners. Um, We hosted our first suppers on Inauguration Day 2017 with a goal of doing two things. One, creating spaces around dinner tables for folks to come together and build trust across lines of difference, whether that be political, racial, ideological difference, and try to get back to a place of seeing one another as deeply human again. And spaces um, that we at the time called healing suppers that were really all about folks who were in communities who were feeling particularly either under threat or who, um, for whom the state of affairs and our, our political environment was anxiety producing to create sacred spaces for them to be with one another and sort of fortify their own sense of of strength um, in community. And so, you know, over the past, gosh, five plus years, the People's Supper has hosted thousands of suppers across the country um, with that aim towards having tough conversations about the places and spaces and things that can hurt us most, but in communities that we care about. And so I invite folks who are interested in the People's Supper, it's still going strong um, under the leadership of uh, our dear friends at the dinner party um, to check out the People's Supper website. um, We've moved sort of, there are models if you'd like to host some in your own communities with free guidebooks and directions on how to do that. But the model has really shifted to go even deeper in communities and walk with folks and accompany them over the course of not just one supper, but um, several as a way of, again, going back to the notion of weaving, right? Weaving community. And building trust. It's, uh, It's really, it's extraordinary. We need to take one last break and then a few more minutes with Reverend Jen Bailey. You're listening to State of Leaf Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. For Progressive Voices, I'm John Sinton, and this is A Turning Point. Today, 
come together. According to music superstar and activist Bono, quote, America is the greatest idea that the world has ever had. It just doesn't exist yet, unquote. As a way of expressing that there is hope in unity and unity in hope, he tells a story of his AIDS activism and how he approached the even then elderly senator from North Carolina, Jesse Helms, who was infamous for his homophobic segregationist views. Bono called Senator Helms and he said, look, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, and Jesus wasn't concerned what was happening in anybody's pants. Jesus, he said, represents love and service. He wondered aloud to Senator Helms, what vision of God do we have? Jesus never denigrated anyone. His sole concern was how we treated the poor and the infirm. Bono went on to enlist a skeptical Senator Helms in what, until the pandemic, would become the largest relief effort in the history of the world. It was the United States brought together by these unlikely bedfellows in getting the Bush administration to fund AIDS research and relief in Africa that led the way. Bono remains the picture of humility, still a dedicated activist. He now says, I don't have anything to teach. I rely on a great Franciscan scholar whose only teaching was listen. He said for America to save itself and achieve its unrealized potential, we must listen to those whose views and ideology we oppose, to those who annoy us and to those who we just don't like. One of the He Gets Us commercials that ran in the Super Bowl reminded us that Jesus loves who we hate, an excellent message for unity, but it's funded in part by Hobby Lobby's CEO, who also works against LGBTQ rights. I suppose they'd say love the sinner, not the sin, but the pro-Jesus anti-people message is really confusing, if not totally hypocritical. And division is not just a problem in the Christian world. Israel is undergoing its own constitutional crisis as a coalition of its ultra-conservative, ultra-nationalist, and ultra-orthodox Jewish community at odds, at odds with its secular history moves to place the courts under political control, jeopardizing its well-respected judiciary whose very independence hangs in the balance. Israeli President Isaac Herzog represents the secular majority in opposition to Israeli strongman Benjamin Netanyahu, who has his own very personal reasons to take over the judiciary. Bibi, as he is known, is under criminal indictment for corruption and controlling the courts might keep him out of prison. President Herzog said, I'm telling you loud and clear, this powder keg is about to explode. This is an emergency. Again, we see two sides diametrically opposed to each other's governing philosophies, unwilling and unable to listen. There's so many ways in which we talk past one another. We alternately live in ignorance of hateful stereotypes and bend over backwards to maintain them. Michael Becker recently wrote that attention and fear are the only currencies that we find monetizable in the 21st century. He's right, and somehow, if we are to dig our way out of the multiple crises we find ourselves mired in, we'll need to keep attention, but convert fear to love. It's tall order, because love doesn't sell magazines. Scandal does. Love doesn't crank up cable news ratings. Fear does. And love doesn't inspire politicians or their followers. Enemies do. 
Maybe it begins with a dedication to discernible facts, what used to be known as the truth. The oft-quoted historian Heather Cox Richardson deals in the immutable facts of history. Here's her take on our current situation. Quote, there is a difference between political spin, which virtually all political operatives use, and which generally means making a statement without full context to ensure that it's misleading, and rejecting the reality-based community in favor of lies and attacks. Political decisions that are not based on reality rob us of our right to make informed decisions about our government and what it will do. Voters need fact-based information to elect people who will enact the policies a majority of us want. We need politicians to participate in the reality-based community." Unfortunately, an entire industry dedicated to monetizing division and contention has grown up around our fragmented media. Political fundraising, the internet, social media, cable news, and talk radio all thrive on controversy. They don't care about truth. They routinely invent controversy to further their financial and political goals. What we need is unifying leadership, but none is in sight, and Bono doesn't want the gig. Historically, we have rallied around the mission to stop a common enemy. The very real threats of COVID and climate change turned out to be divisive rather than unifying. We have such great potential, but if existential threats don't pull us together, what will? Progressive Voices' John Sinton has written a continuing series called A Turning Point that touches on politics, culture, and media. You can hear the short essays in the on-demand section of ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. You've got us 24 hours a day on your mobile smartphone via the Progressive Voices app. This is the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. With me is Reverend Jennifer Bailey. I want to go back to something you said earlier that um, struck me about Max and Mm -hmm. that he was going to be growing up both as a person who is black and also Jewish. And Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, how do you understand the anti-Semitism rise Mm -hmm. in this day? Yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, so there's so much to say (laughs) about that. as somebody who is married to a Jewish man and who we've chosen to raise Max with Judaism being his primary religious home, um, it's probably an odd thing for a clergy person in the African Methodist Episcopal Church to do, <laughs> um, but felt right for us and our family for a number of reasons. You know, the thing about anti-Jewishness that is true is that it always comes in cycles and waves, <laughs> right? And so where there are moments of sort of uprising and scapegoating in particular of Jewish identified folks as a way of putting off a sense of um, blame shifting for certain political and social circumstances. I mean, you can go back to like this notion of blood libel from the middle ages, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There, Mm -hmm. There always happens in cycles. And so I don't think that it is a coincidence that 
we are seeing this uptick and rise of anti-Semitic violence at the same time that we have sort of a larger uptick in violence against Asian Americans and, you know, vehement anti-Blackness that is also, you know, um, permeating. And I, I would say, you know, a deepening rise in sort of white Christian nationalism that very much places at the center of its analysis um, a sort of exceptionalism of whiteness. And I'm going to distinguish yes. that from white people, right? Because I think when we we talk in these terms, it's important to both name the ideology for what it is and that people are more complicated than that sometimes, yeah. right? Um, and so, you know, it, it's also true in the U.S. that Jewish folks make up less than 10% of the population. So the reality is that many people don't know Jewish folks, right? Uh -huh. They don't have them in their community or in their families or in their lives. And so, again, when you don't know, it's easy to project onto mm. people mm -hmm. um, sorts of stereotypes and understandings that are not grounded in reality, but based in um, ignorance. And all of that is true. And, you know, I live in the South. I live in a context that is very much um, competes as one of the buckles of the Bible Belt. Um, and so it feels really important to me as I think about what it means for Max to be cultivating both a black identity. I mean, he's, he's real cute, Paul, like, but he can't pass. Right. Which was, you know, honestly, um, this is very vulnerable to, to share, but it's one of my biggest fears when like I was giving birth was like, is he going to be recognizably my child? Right. Or are people going to assume that I'm the help in this situation? Right. Oh, Lord. Um, which is, you know, its own, my own set of stuff, but it could be really easy for him to grow up in this context and not have a sense of his own identity as being Jewish and having Jewish heritage. Um, and so it takes a great deal of intention to do so. Uh -huh. And um, for him to embrace both of his identities um, not as in competition or in conflict, but just a part of the legacy that he has inherited and something to be deeply proud of. Um, I write in my book that he is, you know, the product of people who survived the Shoah and people who survives chattel slavery, right? right. Like in his bones are folks who, um, and in his DNA are people and stories, more importantly, right. <laughs> of communities that not just survived, but thrived against the greatest odds, against contexts that were meant for their literal destruction. Um, and so it feels really important for me to ground him in a sense of that history, in a sense of that lineage and legacy, while also helping him recognize it as a strength and a superpower. Well, um, and, and you so, know, the, yeah. that's absolutely, I mean, there's also the, Unfortunately, it may be a corollary, but there is with with both of those communities, there's incredible wealth of spiritual, moral, um, cultural power that is, you know, uh, part of his legacy. I think that that you said it so beautifully, and uh, I really appreciate that. And and this is this is something 
you know, obviously really personal to you and and something that you're you're living with every day. And, you know, it's interesting. We kind of started out with this conversation about about Max and about your your broader life. And um, I want to bring it back to one one final question that we we touched on also earlier, but I'd love for you to to offer it um, to our listeners again is what gives you hope right now? Oh, so many things give me hope right now. Honestly, um, I sense hope in Max's laugh and giggle, his like mischievous giggle when he's causing mischief with his friends <laughs> or I discovering something new that he loves, whether that be trains or marching bands, right? Like he's really into HBCU, historically black college um, marching bands. And I love that. And I want him to cultivate that, <laughs> right? Like there's a sense of wonder there, you know, I have a deep sense of hope when I look at the amazing community organizing that has been done throughout the South for a long time of folks organizing for rights um, and hostile political context. I feel a great deal of hope in the conversations that I get to have over dinner tables with college students and elders <laughs> asking them the question of what they envision as the good life. Um, so I guess my hope is grounded not necessarily in um, systems of politics or power, but in people. Um, knowing that people will disappoint me and people do disappoint me and I will disappoint folks, right? Like in my letter to Max in my book, I say, I'm your mama and I will disappoint you and I will get it wrong, right? Like let's own that now and I will apologize because that's the type of parent I want to be and I'm already in the practice of doing that with him. And um, as we're moving towards um, a new era and human existence, the thing that I keep going back to that we talk about automation or AI or just the reality of a changing climate, the one thing we can't replace or replicate is the care that we show to one another. And, you know, it is my hope, um, even as we see so many systems falling apart and things beginning to crumble, that um, in this apocalyptic uncovering moment, we will also see the sparks of creativity, imagination, and new life that might guide us forward. Um, please stay in touch. You can follow our work at faithmattersnetwork.org. And also please check out the work of Weave, the social fabric project at the Aspen Institute. Um, it is a community that is nationwide that is doing amazing work asking this question of how do we rebuild, how do we rebuild trust? And it is open to everyone. And their website is simply weareweavers.org. The Reverend Jen Bailey is founder and executive director of Faith Matters Network and co-founder of The People's Supper. She's the author of the book, To My Beloveds, Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope. Jen, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. And I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
and you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like this are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.